around, wasn't it? It was uh, lots of fruitful discussion, thinking about uh, how people come to the gospel. And the thing about God's grace is that it really is too good to be true. It really is too good to be true. And yet it's not so easy to accept, is it? And, and you find that out when you go and share the gospel with someone. Uh, often they don't accept it, do they? And we come to one of the great Old Testament stories about such a moment, uh, where a total outsider, Naaman, comes to accept the gospel, comes to know God. So let's jump in it together. I'm really excited to get into this great passage with you. Let's jump in. You can follow on in your outline if you want, if that's helpful. But firstly, um, I've got a few headings. Firstly, God's grace works through all events. Let's jump right into verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a great man in his master's sight and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. So Aram or Syria, it was a pagan nation to the north of Israel and they were idol worshippers. I've got a bit of a map there uh, in case you're wondering how it all fits in. Um, But the surprising thing in verse 1 is to hear that God had given Syria, this pagan nation, its victories in battle. It comes as a bit of a surprise. It it was a gift from God to Naaman uh, and it had made him into a great man. Um, it, It perhaps comes as a surprise, but it shouldn't, should it? Because... God is over all nations. He's not some small-time director. He, he draws near to his people, and yet he does not let the pagan nations go unsupervised. Well, verse 1 continues. The man was a brave warrior, but he had a skin disease. So we have our, our predicament for the story, the problem our story is going to work through. The brave warrior had some kind of bad skin disease, uh, a bit, something a bit like leprosy. A great man with a serious flaw. It, it's, a, it, it's a great picture of humanity, isn't it? So marvellous and yet so flawed. And now our story, it introduces uh, another character, small as a mouse, and yet in possession of the greatest gift. Have a look at verse 2. It says, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl, who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his disease. And so the great warrior is contrasted with this small girl, a girl who, who clearly had had a tragic life. You know, she, she had been taken to Syria by one of these raiding parties, probably ripped from her family. Uh, tr- a terrible life, right? Uh, She was a victim of these kind of powerful empires, blown and crushed by these huge forces. And yet she is full of hope, grace and care, for she knows God. And she feels compassion and care for Naaman, her master. And so she shares her source of hope and joy with him. Verse 4 continues. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And so our story unfolds. Uh, Naaman goes to find out more. He wants to meet this prophet. He wants to see if it is true. Uh, And so he he goes. He makes journeys. Uh, They pack for the journey. He he gets permission from the king. Uh, Verse 5 adds, um, He went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. 
And you can see the Holman translation uh, helpfully updates the old uh, measurement into pounds for us, which we don't use pounds because we're not American, so it's not that helpful after all. But <laughs> and you'll notice there's 10 changes of clothes, which I assume is because Naaman wet the bed all the time. <laughs> no, that's a, it's obviously a gift. They were obviously, uh, you know, fancy robes or something like that. 10 changes of clothes. Well, the pagans travel to Israel. Let's, let's jump into when Elisha and Naaman finally meet uh, to see our second point, that is, God's grace offends when offered. Uh, have a look at verse 9 with me. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. This is, this is a ridiculous image, this huge diplomatic entourage there at, at the house of the prophet who, you know, I mean, a lot of the other prophets just lived in caves, would have been very, you know, a very simple place, whatever it was. Uh, and yet, you know, you, you kind of have to hope that these uh, Syrian chariots laden with gold didn't leave, you know, tracks in the neighbor's lawn or that kind of thing. Like, it, it's quite a ridiculous image. The, the great warrior with a lorry of money, there he is. He finally makes it at, at the door of Yahweh's prophet. And verse 10 continues... Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. So Elijah sends a messenger. Just some guy is sent with instructions. Uh, Elisha doesn't even see Naaman. Why not? I mean, maybe he hadn't done his hair in the morning and he was a bit embarrassed. No. But, you know, like, why doesn't he greet the traveler? What's going on, right? Uh, he doesn't see him, and his instructions are... I mean, they're kind of stupid, aren't they? Uh, go wash seven times in the Jordan. Um, it's like one of those banal ads on the internet. Do this one little thing and you'll look like Brad Pitt or Ian Tom, uh, as we always say. Um, you know, eat one carrot a day and it will, you know, it'll cure your baldness or something ridiculous. Uh, Elisha's words, they feel like this. Do, this. do this one little thing and you'll be healed. What is going on? Has this great man traveled all this way only to be insulted. Elisha is teaching uh, Naaman and us about God's grace. And we learn four ways here that God's grace is offensive. Uh, firstly, God's grace is offensive as it forces us to humble our pride. As we follow our story, Naaman uh, unsurprisingly gets angry at everything that's happened. Let me read from verse 11. But Naaman got angry and left, saying... I was telling myself he'll surely come out, stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. And I, I love the internal dialogue. Oh, you know, I was telling myself surely he's at least going to come out. <laughs> and the, the Hebrew there, it literally says, um, surely he will come out to me. The emphasis is on, you know, he's going to come out to me. To me, the great Naaman is what it's getting at. See, like all of us, Naaman had forgotten that his greatness was a gift from God. All he had was from God. Elisha treated Naaman like a leper, didn't he? Unclean, not to be touched, like a leper that needed to be healed. If you come to God, he will treat you like you need healing, because we all do. And so it forces Naaman to humble himself. Next, we see that God's grace is offensive as it reverses expectations. Naaman is offended at the lack of spectacle. Notice his words in verse 11 again. It says, surely he'll come out. 
Stand and call on the name of Yahweh and wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. He wants a great spectacle called some waving. Sorry, I like saying that, as you can tell. But instead, he's given these simple instructions. Uh, that They're simple, they're, they're specific, they're ordinary. Uh, ordinary things which, of course, don't heal, uh, but with God's extraordinary power, they would. Uh, and that's the point, isn't it? God's grace, it's the reverse of what someone expects in a religious encounter. We expect someone wearing something fancy, a hat or a robe perhaps, uh, maybe some smoke, some special words, some herbs perhaps, uh, and of course some kind of payment. Uh, But thirdly, God's grace is offensive as it can't be earned. Naaman expected some kind of transaction, a bribe. That's why he bought the gold, of course. People do. They, they expect to earn their grace. Tell me what to do. I want to do something. You know, perhaps say five prayers a day. I do this one special trick, this one thing. Go to this special person. But what a mockery this makes of the gift, as though you could buy God's forgiveness with just this one small thing. And so Naaman gets angry and leaves. God has been far too irreverent. His grace is such a reversal of expectations it offends. This is what's interesting. Somehow Naaman's servants understand, though, what is going on. They see the issue. And so they say to him in verse 13, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more should you do when he tells you, wash and be clean? It's true, isn't it? Imagine if Elisha had said to him, Ah, Naaman, I see you've bought some gold there, but I'm going to need twice as much gold. He would have been happy with that. He would have gone and got more. Uh, But to do almost nothing, well, it it was just too much. We expect to have to earn our our greatness, our forgiveness, our rightness. Uh, We study hard, we work hard, we labor. Um, Perhaps one of the most famous uh, labors are, are that of Hercules, the 12 labors of Hercules, as they are known. Uh, They were etched into the the great temple of Zeus in Olympia, reminding uh, humans how religion worked. Twelve tasks to pay for, uh, to atone for a tragic debt that Hercules had accrued. Uh, You know, and so he does these things to try and make himself right. His famous second labor was killing the hydra, the nine-headed menace. Uh, His fifth labor was strangely cleaning out the livestock stables of a a king whose immortal livestock produced, you know, huge mounds of dung. I think we all knew that about immortal livestock. It produced a lot of dung. Uh, It was was designed to be, you know, difficult and humiliating. But, you know, my my point is this is how we expect religion to work. Uh, If you want healing or forgiveness, you're going to need to earn it. But God, he reverses the whole scheme. His grace reverses the whole scheme. We don't have to labor because Jesus did it in his son. Jesus is, uh, sorry, rather, God did it in his son. Jesus' labors were done in his life of sinless service and his death on the cross. So now that we all can have forgiveness under him. Uh, the hydra has been killed. The, 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 the hearts of dung have been cleaned. No, no, I'm probably stretching the metaphor too far here. <laughs> All right, my fourth reflection is that God's grace is offensive as it happens on his terms. It happens on God's terms. See, there's no bargaining with God. God sets the conditions. Uh, And Naaman, who commanded thousands, 
He needed to learn that. When he came to God, there was no bargaining. Uh, Elisha says, uh, as the story goes, go wash in the Jordan. And Naaman says in verse 12, notice what he says, aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. God's grace is on his terms. Uh, and we see as our story unfolds, Naaman's men pursue, uh, persuade him rather uh, to listen to Elisha. And, and so verse 14 says, Naaman went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. So Naaman was obedient in the end. He did what God asked, and just like that, he was healed. But more than that, he came to trust God at that point, didn't he? See, our instinct is to come to God and to bargain. We want to change the agenda. Uh, We have got some suggestions that we would like to make. But we forget that we're dealing with God the Creator, don't we? And so uh, I want to challenge you in the same way when you come to God, when you you come to His Word, when you're reading the Bible, uh, and something strikes you, don't say, this isn't very fair, God. I don't like that. Rather say, well, this isn't sitting well with me. And then ask yourself, why? Uh, What does it reveal about your sin and about God's goodness? Don't try and come to God and bargain. We come to him and he sets the agenda. God's grace is offered on his terms. We are those that obey, that obey his word and trust in him. Well, the story of Naaman, it just couldn't get any better. And what follows then is this amazing conversion response from Naaman to God's grace. We see that God's grace creates unmistakable change. God, he regenerates, he rebirths, he saves, and the signs are unmistakable. And with Naaman, we see three clearly uh, from the passage. Firstly, uh, his confession. So verse 15 says, Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know that there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. Naaman confesses. Confesses that God is the universal God. But such a confession is, is more than just words. It's a line in the sand. He's saying this is God. This and he only is Lord of the whole world. It's a line in the sand. The next uh, sign of regeneration in Naaman is his commitment, uh, his service. Um, Naaman orients everything he has to the service of Yahweh. And you see it immediately uh, in his wanting to give money to the prophet. The end of verse 15, he says, Please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, I stand before him. I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept, but he refused. See, Elisha wants to make a clear break with human religion and show Naaman clearly that God can't be bought. His healing was not for money. It was pure grace. He's teaching him about who God is. Uh, But it is a sure sign of regeneration when someone receives God's grace and then wants to use what God has given them to serve the king, to serve the true king. Well, thirdly, uh, God's grace has changed Naaman, and we see that in his not compromising. Naaman, uh, an outsider, surrounded by idolatry, uh, and so he, he kind of has a problem now. He has to go back, but he doesn't want to compromise. So let's have a look at verse 17. It says, please let your servant, or Naaman uh, says this, uh, 
Please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other god but Yahweh. However, in a particular matter, may my lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimon to worship, and I, as his right-hand man, bow in the temple of Rimon, when I bow in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So he said to him, go in peace. Well, this is a pretty weird one, right? Like, what's going on there? There's two glaring questions. What, why does he want the soil? And, uh, you know, was it okay to go to another temple? Well, uh, let me... Let me Let's think about the soil. Why does he want the soil? Verse 17. Well, Naaman, he's an outsider, right? He's outside to God's privileged nation of Israel. And he's recognized that God, the universal God, has worked very specially at this one spot, has poured out blessing and grace to Israel. But now he has to go back to his nation, to to Syria, a pagan nation. And so Naaman says, I want some soil. I want to take some of Israel, God's special land, with me. He'll be a little outpost. Naaman wants to be a little outpost of God's nation there in Syria. He'll have his mound of dirt, he'll have his altar, and he'll do sacrifices to Yahweh. I think it's a beautiful gesture. It turns out that God is transportable. He's been fitted with wheels. And so he is a small part of Israel is carried off to Syria. And of course, um, you and I, we are the ultimate expression of the, the transportability of God, aren't we? We're faithful in a sea against Jesus, God's King. Is that how you think about yourself? A little outpost for God? Are you a little patch of Yahweh's soil? Is your house an oasis in the desert? Is your very body a sanctuary of the living God? Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.16 says that our bodies are sanctuaries of God's Spirit. You know, when all the other bodies live for their own satisfaction and glory, this body, the body of a follower of Jesus, lives for him alone. Our bodies, therefore, are to remain pure. You know, verse 18 says, run from sexual immorality, run from corruption, because this is an outpost of God. We're to keep our bodies healthy and and committed to serving God as a little outpost. I kind of love that idea. I think it's such a beautiful thing. He says, I want some of the the soil from Israel. Well, what about the second question, though? Was it okay to attend another temple? The prophet gives Naaman the green light, which is a real surprise. I don't know about you, when I was reading it, uh, he wants to worship another temple, and then Elisha's like, that's fine. I'm like, what? (laughs) Uh, But it's important to remember, in verse 17, Naaman has clearly said he'll only ever offer sacrifices to Yahweh. So he is... Uh, very committed. But Naaman didn't live in Sydney in 2022. He can't just change jobs or move house or country or change religions or go to a different church. Um, We have immense freedom. These are our freedoms. I I think there's never any reason for us to be trapped. I doubt there's ever been anyone as free to serve God in a more pure and dedicated way as us in our society. But Naaman was in a very different place, and so he remains in his role as commander of Syria's, uh, the Syrian king's army. He remains as the right-hand man of the king, including going to the pagan temple with him, but it would be his master that would be worshipping there, not him, which is why I think the prophet says it's okay. 
See, we are to be in the world but not of the world, as we often say. In the world but not of the world. My favourite really clear example of this from the New Testament is Jesus praying for his followers in John 17. Uh, Let me read it. Jesus, he's praying and he says, I'm not praying that you take them, that that is us believers, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And so Jesus' plan isn't that we, we leave the world, uh, rather that we serve God here where he's put us. What matters is who we worship, who we serve, who, who we are. Let me, let me continue a few more verses from Jesus' prayer. From verse 16 he says, They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. See, we are in the world but not of the world. We're sanctified by Jesus and we live out this sanctification by being of the truth, living in the truth that is God's word. And so the trick to being in the world but not of the world, you can see it in Jesus' prayer there, it's building your life around God's word, being set apart, sanctified and special being gods. But let's, uh, let's keep going with our, our story because um, our story ends by showing that God's grace can be used selfishly. Our story has a twist at the end. You probably noticed it in the Bible reading and you don't see it coming. A final lesson in God's grace. The scene is Naaman and his entourage. They've, they've left. They're heading back home. Uh, and verse 19 says... After Naaman had travelled a short distance from Elisha, Gehazi, the attendant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, My masters let this Aramean Naaman off lightly by not accepting from him what he bought. As the Lord lives, I'll run after him, get something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. Amazing words. God has let this pagan off lightly. It's interesting, isn't it? It reminds me of the prodigal son. You remember the eldest son, the, the elder one who's jealous? He has the same offense and sense of entitlement. But God says, it's my grace. I'm going to pour it out where I want and in what measure I see fit. And so in verses 21 to 24, Gehazi, as the story unfolds, Gehazi, uh, he, he runs up to Naaman and, he, and he, he lies, saying, Elisha has asked for some money after all. Uh, so he goes and collects the money, uh, and then he, he returns, he kind of puts it in the tent, and then Gehazi saddles right up beside Elisha again, stands there like nothing's happened. He kind of puts on his best nothing-to-see face here. And then I'll pick it up in verse 25. Elisha says, where did you go, Gehazi? It's an innocent question. Where did you go? It's a bit like uh, when God asked Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, where are you? Why are you hiding? See, when God judges, his questions are searching because we cannot hide our sin from him. And so Gehazi replies, your servant didn't go anywhere. (laughs) Nothing to see here. It's all good. It's staggering. Our capacity to believe that we can deceive God is, it's incredible. Um, And it's even worse with those that have tasted God's power. This was the prophet's right-hand man, Gehazi. It's just, surely he would have known. And yet, People, the human heart, we, somehow we think we can deceive God with our sin. Anyway, verse 26 continues. 
But Elisha questioned him. Wasn't my spirit there when the man got down from the chariot to meet you? Is it a time to accept money and clothes, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, and male and female slaves? See, Elisha, of course, knows what's going on. And this, this was not a time to accept money. It's interesting, uh, the previous chapter, chapter 4, Elisha accepted uh, you know, many good things from the Shumanite woman, but this was not the time, he says. For Naaman needed to know that the Yahweh offered grace free of charge. That He'd come in as an outsider. And Elisha wanted to be perfectly clear. We're not going to accept anything for this grace. And then Gehazi had gone and completely undermined that, hadn't he? He completely undermined it. He'd, he'd uh, distorted God's message of grace. It's interesting here that there's a parallelism. Gehazi, the Israelite, committed idolatry by coveting, didn't he? While the pagan Naaman gave up his idols to serve God. And so as a fitting punishment, uh, it kind of bookends the story. Gehazi is given Naaman's skin disease as punishment. Our story begins, the pagan has the skin disease and ends with the Israelite having it. I'll read verse 27. It says, Therefore Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence, diseased, white as snow. Maybe this is where we get albinos from. I'm not sure. (laughs) It's rather poetic justice, though, to a a poetic end to the story of Naaman's conversion. And the culture that Jesus entered into as a man was full of this same kind of distorting of the gospel grace. And so uh, let me uh, very briefly end on my final point, which is that God's grace offends when offered in Christ. Let me very quickly show you... uh, the one New Testament, New Testament reference to Naaman, it's found in Luke chapter 4. I'll read it out. This is Jesus. He's uh, speaking in the synagogue. Jesus says, uh, In the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet none of them were healed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. See, God's grace to sinners enrages. It's so exclusive. Uh, The Syrian Naaman was healed while the Israelites weren't. How dare God offer his grace only to some? The pagan Naaman's skin disease was taken and given to the entitled Gehazi. And God's grace was taken from the entitled Israelites and given to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to us, to all people. Now God's Mercy, his grace in Christ is offered to all. And it offends. It offends those who believe that they are insiders because they're entitled. And it offends those who are outsiders because it's so exclusive. It can only be found through Jesus Christ's work to save. And so, let me ask, have you been offended by God's grace? As Naaman was, have you been offended by God's grace? Has your pride been crushed? until you tasted his truth and in obedience confessed that Jesus is Lord of all. And, and who have you offended with God's grace lately? You know, when we tell someone about the gospel, it will enrage our hearers. But we do tell to, to pour out God's mercy, and we do it free of charge, just as we received it, remembering the day that we tasted the power of God's grace to change and turn hearts living as an outpost for heaven here on earth, now in our lives, with our lives on display for all to see. 
See, God's grace offends when he offers freedom to the lost in Jesus Christ. Let me pray to him now. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us your grace. May it offend our pride that we will give up our selfish ambitions and turn to you. Keep us, change us, and teach us to live for you. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen.